morning, good evening, wherever you are. This is another podcast for Beyond the Mekong. With me today is Johnny Edbrook. Johnny has been based in Vietnam for many a year. He's had a wonderful career as publisher of Asia Life. Johnny, welcome to the program. What's up? Good to see you again. It's been a long time. Yes, yeah. The media landscape, it has changed enormously, as has the political landscape. Get the feeling that the world is again tipping itself on its head over the last couple of years and we've both seen that happen Mm. probably three or four times over the last 20 or 30 years. Where do you see yourself now based on where you've come from? In terms terms of media, I think within the country I live in, in, within Vietnam, I see it's much, much easier than it's ever been before. Right. I wouldn't say restrictions, It's, it's just much more acceptable to be able to be a little bit more truthful mm-hmm. than what I'm seeing back in the West or Australia or stuff like that. So I think here we're seeing a relaxation still right. about, and how the media can report on stuff. And attitudes from Hanoi and the government. Yes, I, I, th- they, I think the realisation that it will get out there because of you know, social media mm-hmm. anyway, that there has been relaxation but with some considerations in, in place that to do things officially in terms of documentaries and publishing is an awful lot more relaxed than it's ever been since I got here 30 years ago. It's a double-edged sword in that Asia Life was a big part of your professional career. Mm-hmm. It lasted how many years? 16, 17 years. It's a long time and nobody yeah. else was doing that kind of publication, certainly in Vietnam, and uh, it was in Cambodia for quite a while, and Thailand. Thailand for a short time. We'll get there a little later on. Yes. It's a different story. But uh, we all know the issues with the industry, but why did Asia Life close? Oh, just purely marketing. The, The revenue from a print magazine is purely from advertisers. And with the social media... Everyone said, I'll just do it on social media. They didn't want print. Yep. That was it. And it was just getting lower and lower every month. Same in Cambodia. It was just that we couldn't get people to commit to advertising. What were the pressures in terms of being a publisher of an English language magazine in Vietnam? Officially, I wasn't the publisher. Mm-hmm. Just, just to set the record straight. We were a, a publication rather than a magazine. Right. Seriously, there wasn't any pressures. We had to get checked by our publishing house because to, to get the license, we have to, to print through a publishing house. And they were great. They only rejected one cover story, mm-hmm. and that was about ghosts. Why was that? Apparently, it's okay to talk about ghosts, but if you write it down, it's not good. <laughs> And I, when, when it, got, it yeah. got rejected literally two days before we went to print, so we had to somehow come up with a new cover story. And all the, the foreigners in the office are going, what? It's a ghost? It's about ghosts. Mm. And then later I talked to the Vietnamese staff. They said, yeah, when, when you're right. Because they said, we can put it online. It was online. Right. But they just said, just in writing, it's just not good. It's just a thing. I've always been surprised by what people are offended by, perhaps the wrong word, but as journalists, 
around the region, not just here. There's always going to be certain stories that might put you on an edge mm. or that you might think is going to get you in trouble. And the standard rule was that if you can make it through till 3pm the next day without hearing anything, you're probably in the clear. Yes. <laughs> what, what always surprised me, though, is that it was always the innocuous that gets you in trouble, or maybe not trouble, but it's always the innocuous that seems to offend. It's never really what you think should offend or that... Yeah, we d- I, I published a book about propaganda posters mm-hmm. in Vietnam, and that was, that was an interesting project in the fact that we, as we designed it and wrote it and stuff, and writers, because I was in the production side of things, I said, look, we might not be able to print this here. We might have to print it in Thailand and see where we go from here because the publishing house had said finish it and then we'll check it yeah we couldn't just go here's the idea okay and they go yeah that's fine they said right send us the finished thing so an enormous amount of work yeah. based on maybe it will be rejected yeah and we sent it for checking to the publishing house and they only changed one thing which was we referred to it as the american war right and they went, no, official title is the Anti-US Invasion War. Oh, really? Yeah. That's an, that's an odd one. I've heard terminologies used to describe yeah. what I still refer to as the Vietnam War. But uh, Third Indochina War, the American War, there's... Uh... Mm. And it, it, for us, because it was a book on propaganda, mm-hmm. that was great. That actually made it... It just was, <laughs> yeah. it was better reading by that change. When we, we launched the book in Hanoi, we invited a few old painters of posters. Right. And only after the book was in their hand, did and one of them was a very good friend of mine, Mr. Huyen, came up and said, that's my poster. So why didn't you tell me before? I said, we didn't want to get involved in something. Right. If it, got, if it got banned. Yeah. No, it just didn't. They, but once it had been printed, they went, yeah, actually, that's ours. That's mine. That's mine. Um, it was an interesting project to be on. There has been, over the years, a lot of hang-ups, for want of a better word, about the war. My opinion is that they are disappearing fast, and uh, the Vietnam War era is hmm. becoming a distant memory. I think so. I mean, it's, it's if just the cultural change over time. So I arrived in 94, so what's that, nine years after 94? No, um, 20... Four years after, I can't do maths. You're in Hong Kong. Yeah, and then '94 I came here. Right. So the war ended in '75, mm-hmm. and then they, they then there was the Cambodian War, and then there's the Chinese War, the very short war on the border, but very important. Yeah. So basically, when I arrived, they'd literally only been at peace for a handful of years, and the war was still going on in Cambodia until 1998 mm. in terms of. The Indo-Chinese wars. So there, there was basically that security of, of wealth, yeah, that people still didn't spend any money because it's like, well, this could happen again. It was still in their memories. Mm-hmm. But now we're talking about the younger generation. I mean, my kids are 15, 16, and I, I've got staff who are 22 who don't even remember any of that. So they're buying, they'll, they'll buy their iPhone 14s or whatever number it is now, which in the past is like everyone held on just in case. So we're now seeing people spending money, sometimes foolishly, but if you talk about the middle class in Vietnam, 
they're they're okay. They they have no real memory of not memory of the war. It's n- no longer important to them. Whereas when I first came thirty years ago, it was still a hot topic. Yeah, sensitive. Yeah. And I've been walking through the streets of Saigon over the last few days, and uh, it's extraordinary the changes, mm. uh, the construction, and the number of skyscrapers that have gone up. And, I remember when District 2, where we are now, used to sit on the other side of the river. There was just nothing here. This was a hot fire zone during the war, <laughs> mangroves and swamps and the, not much the, else. The, the top of the street, mm-hmm. well, we're in my house now, the top of the street, that's where it started to be a mud track. Right. Literally, so we're in Lambao Chi, which is journalist streets. So all these, all these houses were owned by journalists, given after 1975. Yep. But... There was no road past this to the right. So all those skyscrapers you can see in that direction, they're in the last 10 years. I was talking to a friend of mine the other night, and I was saying how I remember 30 years ago there was nothing over here, and she was saying, I remember 10 years ago there was nothing yeah. over here. And uh, interesting too is that uh, the buildings are full. Uh, there's been rapid construction enormous number of skyscrapers going up right across Asia, including Phnom Penh, but they're all empty. Hmm. Here, they seem to have a reasonable handle on... I'm not uh, sure about that. It's still, we've got... The, hmm. there's, there's certain things with the property market, which are a bit... A lot of them are pre-sold, and a lot of them are actually empty. Look at night, just look out the window, and you can see there's an awful lot of not any lights on. So that's still the case. The, the economy is humming along? It seems to be. Oh, I, I, I mean, obviously, all things considered, it could be better, considering the global situation. But sure. I, I don't think... I, I think it, after the, the COVID experience, it could have been an awful lot worse. But we're still struggling to get over that. And the property market still is one which is sceptical about how much... Um, I think it's. I, th- I believe it's getting back on track. The economy here, it's uh, state central controlled and it's expanded enormously. And when one looks at the comparisons between Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos, Vietnam seems very much to be going its own way. There's a, there are great divisions in ASEAN, which some people talk about publicly and others prefer weren't discussed at all. But uh, Vietnam's relationship with the United States, uh, China, very different. The Vietnamese exports to the US are about $100 billion a year. To China, it's about $56 billion, which gives you an idea of which way they are leaning. How do you think 2024 is shaping up in terms of those relationships? We've just had Xi Jinping come in, and the new Cambodian Prime Minister, Hun Manet, came in just before Xi arrived. There seems to be a flurry of diplomatic negotiations, talk going on behind the scenes. And Vietnam's a kind of an odd country where it sits. It's a maritime state given its coast, but at the same time, it's a mainland Southeast Asian state given its geography. And uh, Vietnam is in a very interesting position going forward. I think Vietnam's advantage is its population. It's got a very large population. More than 100 million now? Yeah, about that. And geographically, it's also in a very good place to be. So if you look at the, 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 the boom in IT that's coming into Vietnam, so you've got Foxcom and, and Apple and all these companies coming in for the IT 
sector, whereas Vietnam in the past was nearly always um, manufacturing shoes, garments, um, furniture was a big one. And now IT and the level of education in Vietnam is, is increased dramatically. There's, there's more universities here than basically, I, I believe, than most Southeast Asian countries. Yep. So Foxcom, I believe, is setting up in Da Nang, which has got two or three universities, just IT-based, tech-based. So with that population, there's advantages. So you can get a workforce, whereas Cambodia and Laos, yeah, they don't just, exist. Just not too many of them. Mm-hmm. That's the, the advantage Vietnam has. And I think that will continue to expand. People will continue to set up here, and the government's relaxed certain business setups if you're a big enough company. Right. I'd like to go back a little bit. You left England, went to Hong Kong, started work with the South China Morning Post. From there, you set up your own company, Aardvark, and predominantly you were in uh, graphic design, and then came the big shift to Vietnam. Why was that? The company, we were doing graphic design, but we were also still doing magazines. I did the the magazine for Apple Asia, and a company from Switzerland, Rangier, contacted me through a friend who was working in Hanoi and said, we need someone to come and help these three publications we have in Hanoi. (laughs) First, I sent my wife out at that time, and um, then I followed and just stayed, because after nine years in Hong Kong, I was just tired and I got to, to Hanoi and it was so exciting, it was so new. You know, a, a very, very small community of expatriates mm-hmm. as well, so everyone knew everyone. Um, it was just fun, I mean it was the heyday yep. of expat experience and you know, I was, I was working on magazines, which I love. I remember being in uh, Saigon in 92 and then Hanoi in 93 and the number of uh, Westerners you count on two hands there just weren't that many a lot of Bulgarians Russians a lot of Russians yeah uh, the Soviet influence was still strong but uh, you witnessed that whole sea change yeah I mean Hanoi when I was first there to be honest there was maybe six bars that expats went to Mm -hmm. so you would see everyone every night so you'd you'd know everyone from different as well from very different roles from infrastructure you know construction manufacturing media obviously because the diplomatic community used to go out in those days as well before 9-11 it all changed after 9-11 but in those days it was not uncommon to get asked over for a weekend barbecue Oh yeah, the Bul- I mean the Bulgarian embassy in um, Hanoi had the best parties in the world. I mean they were wild. This big hot pot Bulgarian goulash. Yep. It, you know, and it, it it was a very small community which um, I really liked. And my contract got extended, so I just stayed. And then you know things in life changed. Sure, family situations. Family situations as yes. these things do. Yeah. And Asia life, it came about. When I moved down to Saigon um, 20, 24 years ago as creative director for advertising agencies. So I worked for two advertising agencies as creative director, started making TV commercials and all that stuff, and then got fed up with the bureaucracy of agencies. So that's when I set up my own company called 365 Days. 
it was a very small agency, but we didn't have account executives. I did the work. We had staff, we had designers, we had creatives, we had production. Um, so I wanted to set up a boutique agency that did content, creative content, which worked really well. Asia Life, there was three guys who wanted to put a magazine together. I had the most experience in magazines, so they were put in contact with me and I gave them some advice. And then I said, you're going to have to work with a publishing house, with you know the, the government system. I said, oh, no. They said, no, no, we, we've got that sorted out. You know, we've got a friend in the government. I'd like a dollar for every time I'd heard that. Yeah. And about three weeks later, I got a phone call from one of the guys who basically said, ah, yeah, no, this is not going to work. Can you help us? So I said, yeah, yeah I, I want, you know, I'll become a partner. I want a share in this and we will launch it, um, which we did. It had a few hiccups along the way with mm. dodgy expat people who stole off, stole the, the idea and then um, I had to relaunch much more successfully about a year later. I can think of half a dozen publications where that has happened. They didn't last long, the fly-by-nighters who tried to do these things, but by God, they caused problems at the time. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's, that hiccup. But we, we kept going and because of the way it was set up, that's when I got complete control over the direction of the magazine. And we managed to do things which, quite frankly, were unbelievable at the time. And even our competition were saying, how did you do that? So we did the first ever Prince article. It was a cover story on the basically the gay population, mm -hmm. which we've been trying to do for ages, but we're just told by the publishing house, no, no, you can't talk about that, you can't talk about that. And the magazine was big, large, full colour, glossy. Yeah. It was yeah. very well designed. All my um, art directors were from um, New Zealand and it, it looked better than any other publication because we had creative and everyone who worked for the magazine has now gone on to much better ground. The, the two top photographers in Vietnam basically cut their teeth on Asia Life. Three, sorry, that's another one. And then the Cambodian edition yeah. came out with Mark Jackson, who yeah. I think did a terrific job. And then you tried to launch in Thailand, which wasn't quite wrong. as successful as you <laughs> like it could be. just the wrong time. wasn't that long ago. Um, well, 2013, 14 perhaps? Yeah, around then. It was a, the wrong time. And we were going head-to-head -head with a very established publication, which made life very difficult. It, we did four issues and then went, ah, oh, no, this just isn't going to work. But it was fun. It was fun doing it. It sure. was just the wrong time and we didn't foresee how difficult it would be to go against the opposition. But the, the competition. Market. You were also coming in at that point as the whole smartphone technology yeah. was... I don't, I don't think a lot of us saw that happening in that by the turn of the century, the internet had made itself known. We could kind of see where that was going. The industry was... The shit was getting kicked out of the industry anyway. And then around I think, 2012, 2013, the smartphone technology really was the final nail in uh, I think so, yeah. It, it, was, it was also the, the, I know, the, the, the cusp of... We had a, you know, a website. We had a very good guy who put the... One of the partners in Asia Line mm -hmm. put the... Well, two partners put the website together. It was very good. But monetizing the website, it was too early to do that, but it was too late to get people in print. So yep. it was just that turning point yep. 
we, you know, we had an amazing website which worked on your smartphone and, and everything, but couldn't get people to pay any money to advertise on the website because they didn't understand how that worked. Um, social media was still not really helping. In its infancy? Yeah. Uh, oh, it wasn't really infancy, yeah. but in terms of monetizing it, it was still early days. This is where I would like to go next in that uh, monetizing anything off the internet is uh, the bane in everybody's life who's involved mm -hmm. in publications, media, online. Everything. How do you see it going forward? Do you think days will improve? I, I don't know. If you look, I mean, you look at the music industry and like Spotify, how much people, and Apple Music, how much people actually get paid mm. for downloads of their music, it's nothing. So you're then going back to, what's her name? Is it Taylor Swift, who's just yep. earned billions of dollars doing a, talk, a world tour. Mm -hmm. So everyone's having to rethink how you make money out of music, how online publications, there's millions of them. You know? yep. So how, how do you, blogs, there's, Millions of them. And no one cares. Well, that's unfair, but uh, their readership is limited. Yeah. So how do you make money out of it? And it's, it's the, the you know, changing industry for the creative industry itself is that how do we actually make any money these days? Well, that comes back to the future of print is in print. Uh, we look at uh, vinyl record sales, for instance. I don't collect them, but a lot of people do. Uh, on the music front, a lot of bands make their money off T-shirt sales, yeah, yeah, collectors' yeah. items. These well, kinds that's, of that's things. That's what Taylor Swift made most right. of her money out of merch merchandising. And that's where I'm wondering, in terms of print magazines, newspapers, is there a potential there for some kind of rebirth? Uh, the economic model would obviously have to change. Presentation, how you go about it, would again have to change. But uh, is there still a future in that? I think yes, it could happen, but then. How do you make money out of it? You're still reliant on advertising. One of the competitors here, he shut down before we did because he just so sold advertorial. Mm -hmm. And no one wanted to read his magazine anymore because you'd, you'd read it and it was a review of a hotel which was just obviously paid for. Yep. And therefore, you read it after the first five lines, you go, <laughs> yeah, I'm, no, they paid for this. So it, it, and it's the it, same it's, crap on TripAdvisor. Yeah. yeah. So how does, I mean, you can go into a, a long, long conversation about media and how information we get now. If someone could be independent and write things that people want to read about, yep. I think it's possible. But then you've got to persuade the advertisers to fund it. And you need the publishers to stump up the cash and provide that environment where mm. we are seeing... Uh, uh, the whole concept of independent journalism just seems to continually change and not in the right direction. Uh, yeah. I think we were saying the other day that uh, you know, there was a time when a journalist simply meant a journalist and then it became an independent journalist. Yeah, and yeah. now that's gone right out the window because so much of it's paid for and it's very difficult to uh, find that independence in among them. I, I think it will straighten out in the long run but I think yeah, it will the, the, how do you fund it how, how does this keep going because yep. there is there isn't the media in which you can place this stuff so print is expensive you've got to you've got to pay for the actual physical printing you've got to pay for distribution 
then you've got to try and recoup if you're selling my magazine was free but if you're selling the magazine then you've got to get your money back from those sales of which is not very much and perhaps ironically you're living in an environment in vietnam where it's actually becoming easier to uh publish these kinds of magazines yeah 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 that is ironic but I think it, it could come back. It's just how you fund them. It was it was the problem in the very beginning. To launch a magazine is is so risky in the first place. It just sure. I mean, I think it's something like ninety percent of all publications fail, and it could be way more than that. I launched Asia Life. That was my money. Yep. I had to invest, and yeah, I mean, I met with the CEO of Nat Geo who wanted to launch in Vietnam and he was very impressed by Asia Life sending a lovely email going very good magazine and he was looking for a it was it's basically a franchise Nat Geo but he wanted a his my proposal had to be that I didn't make any money for three years ask a stupid question but how does that work he said, we know from, for a fact that if you think you're going to make money in the first three years, it won't happen. So do you have the funds, print it, and okay. keep going for three years? And I kind of looked at that and went, no, I don't. I don't. Extraordinary, the costs involved with the publication yeah. of that quality. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so difficult to do a magazine and make it work you know I think I've done I've designed I think my last count was 65 magazines I've designed or published or designed and published I can't think of any of them that still exist these days and that's not because I'm shit in my, my job um, it's just <laughs> that, not, they've had, they, that they've had their life some of them succeeded and did very well some of them just failed Vietnam has always held a wonderful uh, sense of nostalgia has got an extraordinary history a great novelist, Graham Greene. We can hear the background noise yeah. now. It hasn't changed very much. Uh, do you still have a sense of wanderlust with Vietnam, the nostalgia, the history, walking through District 1, where the Givrel coffee shop used to be opposite the Opera House, there's a caravel. Oh, yeah. Is um, it still... Do you still get that buzz? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it, it's... Vietnam, although it's, you know, we've got all this infrastructure, you know, the, 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 the roads and the, the skyscrapers and stuff like that, is still a fascinating place. You know, if you, the people are amazingly funny many, many times over. I mean, they, they keep amazing me. If you go to anywhere in the countryside and the fun that you can have is still, I'm still gobsmacked. Right. Now my, my nephew had a literally a year ago yesterday got married in the Mekong Delta where the whole village turned up I have never seen 500 drunk people in one place so happy it was absolutely amazing and of course the, the village idiot turns up yes. as well and that that side of Vietnam is not going to change. It won't. Do, you know. You know. I've been here thirty years. I've met some of the most famous people in Vietnam. Doi Moi, General Yap, the guy who drove the tank through the gates in seventy-five. Seventy-five. Yeah, met him, and he was quite funny. If you've just driven the tank from Da Nang to Ho Chi Minh City and like, ended the Vietnam War, yeah, <laughs> without air conditioning. 
So that must have taken them quite a couple a couple of weeks because it, it still takes like eight hours, to nine hours to drive just in a normal car with the roads. In those days, he was and he said, you know, we got to the president's palace and we fired our, our gun and it didn't go off. And I'm like, oh, okay. But so what happened? He said, well, we just rammed the gates and that's where the picture comes from. Neil Davis. Because unless it was Neil Davis, yeah. Because the the last round they had, they were told to blow the gates open, and it didn't work. So they just drove into it. Made a better shot. To be Fantastic shot. Yeah. So it went around the world. Yeah, things like that. The experiences of of sitting in cafes and hearing stories, which is why I want to do more interviews with Vietnamese people coming up to the fiftieth. Right. For to get those stories. It's always been quite extraordinary how accessible Vietnam can be and the people once they decide to let you in, as opposed to the image of Vietnam as a closed society, particularly here in the South since 1975. The easy answer to that one is that if you're actually kind of nice, a nice person and respect people, Vietnamese will treat you really well. In 30 years, I have never really had someone who doesn't like foreigners. I've had incidents of theft and stuff like that. That's the same in all countries. But if you're nice, Vietnamese will be very nice to you. If you're a bit of a wanker, they won't be. Because that's not in their culture. Just be nice. Johnny Edbrook. Thank you very much. Delightful chat. No problem, mate. I'll see you again soon.